Talks on Psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. In this podcast, we present a panel that took place recently in the Centro di Psicoanalisi Romano of the Italian Psychoanalytic Society. The participants are Giuseppe Mocha, chair of the panel, Cono Aldo Barna, and Lucio Sarno. The theme that is developed concerns the variations of the psychoanalytic method in relation both to the new pathologies and to the extensions of the analytic treatment to new contexts, such as the family, couples, and groups. The changes caused by the new conditions due to the COVID-19 pandemic are also considered. Giuseppe Mocha is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and training analyst of the Italian Psychoanalytical Society and the International Psychoanalytic Association. He has long been a supervisor at the Psychiatric Services of Roma and Ancona, President and Scientific Secretary of the Centro di Psicoanalisi Romano, and coordinator of the Psychoanalysis and Neuroscience Committee of the Italian Psychoanalytical Society. He has written numerous articles in Italian and international journals on the issues of patients with severe pathology, the intersubjective approach, as well as the relationship between psychoanalysis and neuroscience. This text is read by Diego Francisco Andrade. Introduction to Modern Psychoanalysis Caught Between Its Method and Extensions of Clinical Practice Our clinical practice has steadily changed in recent years. Clinical populations have changed, both in their social origins and in the severity of their pathology. Children, adolescents, couples, parents facing a crisis in their parenting role, and patients with identity disorders have increased demand for psychic health, all the more so during this dramatic pandemic, which threatens the continuity of effective relationships and the sense of personal integrity and stability. We can sum this up by saying that there is increased demand for psychoanalytic treatment from non-neurotic patients, but that there is a comparable reduction in the demand for psychoanalysis, so that it is now a common experience for us as psychoanalysts to work with patients for one to two or three to four sessions a week, rarely five. In other words, even if we are still practicing psychoanalysis in our consulting rooms, our obligation to meet the demand for psychoanalytic listening and our professional responsibility towards our patients have extended our clinical practice. The broadening of the clinical indicators for psychoanalysis has made it possible to explore the further therapeutic potential of our method and its setting, to investigate the distressing experiences of non-neurotic patients in relation to the setting itself, 
and examine how we can shape it towards the new requirements of clinical work. These changes have generated new observations and changes in technique, which have in turn influenced current theories. The theoretical and clinical developments of psychoanalysis have had such a strong impact on the very conception of the method that today, despite the unanimous agreement of the psychoanalytic community about the method's importance and centrality, there is nevertheless disagreement about its unity or multiplicity. In contemporary psychoanalytic discussion, two positions coexist with regard to this in a state of dialectical tension. The first warns about psychoanalysis retreating into an idealized conception of the psychoanalytic situation and is more open to modifications of technique. In this conception, the method is considered an invariant of the psychoanalytic experience founded on a particular type of thought emerging from the pairing of free associations with free-floating attention. From this perspective, what are considered variable are the working procedures by which the analyst performs his or her analyzing function, because these are the foundations of the psychoanalytic situation, guaranteed in turn by the analyst's internal setting. By contrast, Proponents of the second position fear the risk that equating setting and method with the mind of the analyst may introduce idealized and subjective versions of the psychoanalytic experience, with the danger of assigning the definition of the setting, method, and object of psychoanalysis to the arbitrariness of each analyst-patient couple's interpersonal experience. In the following papers, we find many of the characteristic arguments about this controversy, different theoretical emphases and clinical sensibilities, and a common effort in the circumstances of the time we are living in, in our commitment to caring for our patients' human dilemmas, to find a possible coherence between theory, method, and practice. Corno Aldo Barna is a physician, psychiatrist, and training analyst for the Italian Psychoanalytical Society and the International Psychoanalytic Association. He has worked in psychiatric centers of the Italian health system and has been supervisor of many socio-health teams in various Italian cities. He was president of the Centro di Psicoanalisi Romano and vice president of the Italian Psychoanalytical Society. He is co-author of The Unconscious Entry in the Interregional Encyclopedic Dictionary of the International Psychoanalytic Association and Books on Psychoanalysis. Since the 1970s, he's produced many articles on psychiatry and psychoanalysis. His seminar on method originates from the consideration that the growing pluralism of operational and interpretive models and the recent events linked to the pandemic have led to changes in the way analyses are carried out and on potential future transformations. The reflections made in this paper begin from the need for a renewed comparison with the elements of the method. It is useful to keep in mind how much the clinical and development of psychoanalytic thought 
can be affected both by excessive deviation from the founding canons of the method and by the uncritical idealization of orthodoxy. The author considers psychoanalysis as a science that benefits from comparison with other branches of knowledge. In fact, the method has been enriched through the updates of theory and technique and through the acquisition of contributions from the research of related disciplines. Today, we have a considerable variety of models, which increases the ability to intervene in new care contexts compared with traditional individual treatment. This text is read by Diego Francisco Andrade. We have decided to bring into this conversation of ours an update on method, a subject that we have been reflecting on for some time, helped by the valuable contributions of many colleagues, and which, given the unresolved epistemological situation of psychoanalysis, acquires still greater significance as a result of the growing plurality of clinical and interpretative models. In the comparisons being made between them, and with regard to its potential extensions. Moreover, recent events linked to the pandemic have brought about changes in and associated considerations of the ways in which analysis is carried out and its potential future transformations. Indeed, these reflections have entailed a renewed assessment of the elements of the method and the disciplinary setup which characterize the psychoanalytic process. So, I would like to begin with the obvious remark that the question of method, fundamental in any discipline, has been addressed throughout the evolution, ancient and modern, of philosophy, the sciences, and the arts. In many cases, the term simply indicates the way in which one tries to achieve a name without suggesting an order and correlation between several acts, phases, or moments. In many cases, the term simply indicates the way in which one tries to achieve a name without suggesting an order and correlation between several acts, faces, or moments, as an expression such as method of treatment or therapeutic method. As far as we are concerned, as psychoanalysts, the preliminary and essential problem we are faced with is whether our method should be considered as one of many ways to practice psychoanalysis or whether it instead represents the protocol which, after the quiescence of metapsychology and the systematic advent of comparative clinical practices and models, defines psychoanalysis. Gill, 1994, Klein, 1976. Such a protocol, if it existed, would claim to bring together in a unifying definition the energetic drive theories and emotionalist theories and likewise the linguistic and hermeneutic theories of psychoanalysis. According to Imray, Herman, and Fenichel, who dealt with it at length, the psychoanalytic method would be a thoroughly experimental one in that, in order to systematize its observations, it makes use of a controllable and reproducible situation, one that is well characterized and distinguishable from others with the addition that the psychic process unfolding in the sphere of the analytic situation would in no case be separable from the analyst. Herman, 1963, Fenichel, 1941. 
This would result in the method being the fixed point of analysis, entrusted to the knowledgeable competence of the analyst without, however, excluding the movements that can helpfully characterize it, bearing in mind the extent to which both the practice and the development of psychoanalytic thought may be undermined as much by excessive deviation from the founding canons of the method as by the uncritical idealization of orthodoxy. Indeed, I would define as unresolved aspects of the transference those which, inclining towards idealization, encourage rigidity and misunderstandings about correct clinical practices. In fact, I agree with those who have authoritatively stigmatized the spirit of orthodoxy and mutual ostracism that perverts psychoanalysis into a quest for power. Ricoeur, 1986. In other words, I believe it is the analyst's creativity, wisdom, and mental freedom, which are also acquired thanks to a good analysis, that are the characteristics which help patients in their treatment and not rigid servility towards the idealized dictates of the method. Weigert, 1954. And so, it would seem timely to consider psychoanalysis as a form of knowledge in a state of becoming, a discrete and pragmatic science that benefits from comparison with the other branches of knowledge and progresses by elaborating itself over time into various models that are only in part convergent and capable of being superimposed on one another. Nonetheless, I think it is helpful for these different models to find a convergence and or a creative dialectic within the theoretical and especially technical choices of the individual analyst who, in this respect, is wise to preserve a freedom of choice, liberating him or herself from the fideistic tendencies always lurking in the specific features of our training. The progressive expounding of the dictates of the method has had such a rich and detailed development during the century and more of a psychoanalysis existence that it has, to a great extent, supplied the lack of a unanimous formal epistemic location, identifying it as a practice with significance for individual and societal development, or at least for the understanding of the determinants and trajectories single and collective, of our existence. Thus, we have a method endowed with heuristic capacities and significant and systematic practices, with original rules in which we can nevertheless recognize the ancient basis of therapeutic teaching, of speculation about human existence, and the attribution of meaning to it, and to individual and collective conduct. Naturally, as we observe the clinical practice of the various generations of analysts, the method has been enriched by the updating of theory and technique and by the acquisition of contributions from research conducted by related disciplines which have developed useful additions. These contributions have added greater completeness to the explicatory models of mental functioning and the therapeutic relationship without subverting the founding elements of the method itself. And so, we have at our disposal today a remarkable wealth of procedures 
which enable us to make explicit the therapeutic factors that are capable of addressing the maladaptive features of many psychopathological configurations that were traditionally less treatable. We have, as a result, significantly increased the capacity of our device to intervene in new therapeutic contexts different from traditional individual treatment. At the same time, this entails some precise responsibilities in the psychoanalyst's conceptual and personological equipment, necessitating appropriate adjustments in his or her professional training and operational setup. The wealth of models which characterizes the present state of the discipline must in fact find an appropriate synthesis in every practitioner, bringing together completeness, coherence, and suppleness and it must be applied properly with caution, flexibility, and the right effective stance in the psychoanalyst's presence, listening, and engagement. In this connection, I would like to reiterate some personal convictions with regard to my modus operandi, which have remained valid in the face of a great many significant updates in our professional research, and which I therefore consider to be invariance in my methodological setup. I would like to begin with the formulation that analytic work takes place starting from the conception of the object of psychoanalysis that is established within the analyst and from the way it is inflected in the encounter with the patient by means of the latter's contributions. Green, 1973-1974, Barna, 1990. By this, I mean that an object of psychoanalysis also dwells in the patient and, although it is less highly developed and formalized, in analytic work it reciprocates and interacts with the analyst's proposal of such an object. This proposal and what the patient brings to the analytic process are integrated in the events of the transference and in the style of each analysis. In fact, I agree with those who stress the interactive aspect of the analytic relationship and the new possibility attributed to the transference, understood not so much, and not only as a mere repetition of previously experienced emotions, but as a product of the analytic situation itself, which is a formidable edifice of phantoms. McAlpine, 1950, Laplanche, 1986-1987. The progress of the relationship deriving from the dynamic encounter of the two participants' internal worlds takes on its specific character thanks to the proposal that is inherent in the overall structure of the analytic relationship, which goes well beyond the explicit role of the setting and technique adopted. The semantic halo implicit in the structure of the relationship orients the regressive direction of the transference and the oniric associative and metaphorical productions that will constitute the narrative and text of the analysis. This starts with the analytic pair's inferences about the patient's experience in relation to dependency as it becomes explicit in the transference. Flem, 1986, Galise, 2007. Thanks to the couple's joint commitment 
in the specialized sphere of their relationship, significant and transformative reworkings will take shape with beneficial outcomes for the patient's experience as a result of the historical circumstances of her, his psychological development. But a posteriori, there will also be new conjunctions of meaning and new significant versions of the history previously experienced as fate. From this vertex, it becomes possible to reopen for further development the conceptual and emotional scenario that had previously been constrained by the compulsion to repeat and by the impossibility of learning from experience, the outcome being a loss of responsibility in the subject. Bayan, 1970, Erickson, 1964. Many authors now strongly insist on this constructive definition of analytic work. Its operation would not reproduce anything external, having been built up according to coordinates of its own. Therefore, the task of working through does not aim to recover a real history, nor to reconstruct past events, but to construct a new story that is potentially capable of putting dissociated aspects of the subject's traumatic growth into a dialectical discourse and integrating them. In addition, it is necessary to consider both the archaeological model and the concept of repression as being at odds with the most recent studies of memory, at least as far as explicit cognitive memory is concerned, it is unlikely that the psychoanalytic setup, analysis of the transference, associations and resistances in a regime of regression, represents an effective method for rediscovering recall actions. It is more likely that, by means of regression, which reintegrates emotional and conceptual features, implicit memory not consisting of recoverable anemic data, but unconsciously present in the individual's experience and personality, may obtain a new, more verbal, coherent, and relational structuring from the rhetorical and psychodramatic function of, of analytic work, thanks to the effective and representational capacity of the analytic couple. Barna, 1986, Mancha, 1987. I would add that the productions that are interpreted are the result of the contextual proximity of the internal world of the relationship's components. Barna, 1990. This physical, emotional, and linguistic proximity, typical of all intimate contexts, has also been considered as a self-interpreting context rather than an interpretative one. Ferrari-Garoni, 1979. This vertex takes as its starting point the imminent representations of proximity that would find acceptance and language in the relationship. Beginning with the interpretation of the transference, it tends to conceptualize and gradually rationalize the incomprehensible environments of the subject's inner life and history which are fraught with the greatest pain and persecution because, until this moment, they have been deprived of language. 
phantasmatizations are thus organized into textual form on the basis of the IU relational context, two-body psychology of the analytic situation, Barna, 1990. Furthermore, this situation requires a specialized use of regression as an intermediate outcome of the setting produced by the dual functional asymmetry that it contemplates. McAlpine, 1950, Barna, 1950. This first asymmetry is already present in the motivations which have led the two members of the couple to their encounter. The patient comes from the subgroup of those who need treatment or of those who do not know Oedipus. The analyst from the specialized subgroup of those who dispense treatment or of those who have knowledge, Tiresias. Thus, such asymmetry to some extent actually pre-exists the encounter in that it is based on elements which existed previously in the culture of the group and in the models of suffering, treatment, upbringing, and education. As such, however, this first asymmetry is already a powerful vehicle of regression which will find acceptance, reinforcement, and elaboration in the subsequent asymmetrical configuration of the analytic relationship. Indeed, in the setting it conjoins with a second functional asymmetry, which is also destined to be worked through in the course of the analysis. I am referring in particular to the chair-couch arrangement and the psychosomatic symbolic and semantic setup that results from this bodily spatial positioning of the members of the relationship. This arrangement has not, in my opinion, been explored in all its implications. It certainly goes beyond Freud's intention to avoid being looked at and not only gives rise to understandable modifications of the habitual setup characterized by mental and relational control, but also confirms and gives rise to the fruitful specification of the previous cultural or ideological asymmetry. The disposition of the bodies in the analytic space configures a relationship typical of that between doctor and bed-bound patient. But not only that, since it bears a very broad semantic halo, Lamb, 1986. This halo suggests the significant associative unfolding, which tends to make explicit a series of complex polysemic contents of being bedbound and dependent, including, for example, those transferential contents that are erotic in character those of container-contained, uh, of activity-passivity, as well as those of infant-adult, or more specifically, mother-child. The figurative counterpart of the chair-couch pairing is the typical pieta, while the narcissistic counterpart is the claustrophilic one of returning to the womb, the hedonistic return to the mother's body. The richness of asymmetrical vertices absorbing into their own sphere the other motivations and the productions of the relationship constructs the necessarily regressive progress of the relationship, just as it plans the emotional and verbal production which will connote the transference. 
Greenacre, 1954. The other components of the setting and the method act as confirmations of the asymmetry containing the regression and the effective verbal production in a regime of regression separating and protecting the analytic relationship from external reality, the constancy of place and time and of the analyst's behavior, his emphatic and receptive attitude, his abstinence and neutrality ensure the standard foreseeable and reliable conditions in which regression can take place, be acknowledged and progressively worked through. A privileged space is given in this process to the constitution of language by means of the participant's bodily abstinence in the space and time of the session and their separateness in existential time. In addition, I sincerely believe that the daily practice of psychoanalysis heals us therapists, no less than our patients, motivating us specifically to reassume and maintain the role responsiveness, Sandler, 1976, which is, after all, the tool that enables the transference to be welcomed and utilized within the relationship. This reflection is especially significant in relation to what I would like to say to you later on. And for a more complete recognition of the therapeutic action of analysis and its factors. Indeed, despite the constant evolution of research, I regard the definition of such factors as transitory, and likewise the modalities in which psychoanalysis operates to produce its acknowledged outcomes, because what I keep in mind, above all, is the fact that help and benefit have been received by people who have made use of psychoanalysis in different periods of our discipline's history and thus in relation to quite heterogeneous theories, models, and technical inclinations. For this reason, I think our theorizing is a provisional and still incomplete attempt to interpret the functional elements and transformative valences of the analytic situation's specific proximities and the dialogue that unfolds in it. In order to achieve a closer and more detailed approximation of the setup I strive to create in the session, I will now try to explain what I call the monitor model. This is a metaphor I have often used, especially in discussion with my students. I believe that the analyst's overall professional development and his, her, clinical experience have established or maintained a mental attitude towards the analytic relationship. This attitude oscillates between the idealized narcissistic versions of the patient and of the analyst himself, herself, the absolute empathic listening to the patient as unique and the more realistic criterion of being readily available to listen and of conducting this relation as well as possible for the purposes of the relationship itself. This setup often vacillates when faced with certain levels of projective identification or affective frustration, which inevitably and constantly occur in the relationship with the patient. However, in the effective and or operational setup I'm talking about, there is a mental function, 
incidental and or accessory in nature, which takes shape as a spontaneous and reflective mental monitor of the parameters that are helpful to the continuous reading of the analytic relationships condition in progress. This is a function activated in the analyst by a partial mental dissociation in relation to the reciprocal effective commitment, which in the analyst's mind, again continuously, processes the significant elements of the exchange that is going on in the session and signals what is prevalent, dangerous, urgent, or an emergency. Thus, what I'm talking about is a particular dissociation in the analyst's mental setup, which, on the one hand, entrusts itself to the play of associations and fantasy, giving itself up to its own unconscious, and, on the other hand, subjects the material produced by himself, herself, and his, her patient to a critical close examination in such a way as to be guided by both vertices. Ferenczi, 1919. The elements resulting from the implicit continuous monitoring of the context are usually entrusted to a kind of automatic adjustment in the mental and relational setup of the analyst, who makes himself herself available in such a way as to overcome resistances and facilitate the context's further development. However, in cases where progress is problematic, they can lead to ever more explicit interventions by the analyst, even to operations designed to safeguard the formal parameters, the contract, the setting, recontextualization, direct conscious action. We have experience of how this activity may be extremely important. For example, in situations where the prevalent functioning is borderline. However, these interventions should be reserved for those situations where the monitored parameters had shifted into an area of emergency that can no longer be modulated using the countless implicit operational adjustments of the effective and technical factors available in the ordinary intersubjective functioning within the proper setting. It is in this sense that I would quote the saying that the analysis can arrive where the analyst has arrived. In other words, it can reach the degree of deep implicit interpretation of the intersubjective context that the analyst is in a position to propose to his own analysands. And the analysand in particular, whose transference he's receiving in that analytic hour with the competence, effective before it is technical, of which he is capable within the current parameters. And so, the strips left by the monitoring, which has caused the analyst's empathic and operational adjustment in the session provide, in extra analytic time, the elements of strategic reflection on the progress of that analysis and the working through that the analyst must do in order to get back on track in the session. In other words, he or she must be capable of the further adjustments that are necessary in order to welcome the patient back into a condition as close as possible to his standard one. 
In fact, I regard even transference interpretations as operations out of the ordinary, which give markedly new meaning to the relationship and maybe also safeguard the context and are to be used where this seems strictly necessary. By contrast, I regard the mutual trust of the contracting participants in the discourse, their faith that the coupling of transference and counter-transference will take place as ordinary management, as I do free association reverie, which is capable of bringing into effect the unconscious intersubjective third, Ogden, 1994. Much has been said and written about attunement and empathy, and these terms have often been read as signals of a mystical attitude. From what we know today, attunement is the matrix of every therapeutic relationship, and some authors believe they can trace its neurobiological basis. They maintain that when we speak of intersubjectivity, we are really speaking of alignment, attunement, of mental states. Trevarthen, 1993. A phenomenon that is all the more fascinating precisely because it is biological. The interaction between an infant and the first attachment figure would actually be achieved by a continual phenomenal of mental states in alignment. Every significant interaction would therefore occur by means of such phenomena. Many mental states are activated in a therapeutic encounter. Given that they are active simultaneously on several levels, it would be possible to recreate significant alignments. Every human encounter and not just those specific to the therapeutic relationship, may, from this point of view, represent a reparative experience. In therapy, we certainly have many opportunities, systematically much sought after, within the ethical and relational disposition of the participants. They are what Stern calls now moments or moments of meeting. They have the potential to significantly transform the dominant transference. Wise, 1993. Overall, I simply maintain that the setting and the psychoanalytic method, with their rich and detailed components, have achieved the greatest prospective and microscopic specification of the elements aimed at the systematic search for veritative insight and the careful narrative reconstruction of the profound elements of one's own personological becoming. Reconsidering our method, therefore, being alert to, among other things, the wealth and complexity of the contributions which prompt the updating and transformation of our conception of the unconscious, we would like to explicate further the problems for analytic treatment and the clinical setup that are caused by just such a new conception. Barna, 2007-2010. A first significant consequence takes the form of a doubt about the fact that verbal interventions should be understood as the optimal therapeutic vehicle. Bucci, 2002. Along with this observation, there is the suggestion that language should be used not so much to transmit meanings and clarify situations but also to evoke mental states, 
to generate and connect areas of experience. Mitchell, 1988-2000. In the end, this entails an emphasis on the activation of effective experience in the session rather than the inhibition of desire or drive. Bucci, 2002. The verbal exchange between analyst and patient must be understood above all as intersemiotic translation from effects to language and interpretation itself as a specific therapeutic factor because of what it activates rather than because of what it reveals. Martini, 2005-2009. What is needed above all is constant attention to the most informed levels of the unconscious, those that have not yet had access to the representational dimension, and to be solicitous towards the emergence of thinkability. Talia Cozzo, 1982. Therefore, a dialectical model of psychoanalysis would specifically entail recognition of the possibility of establishing connections between the representable and the unrepresentable, between conscious and unconscious, between the interpsychic and the interpersonal, between interaction and transference. Martini, 2009. This is the view of Riolo, to whom we are grateful for his tenacious attention to method. The object of psychoanalysis is neither the conscious nor the unconscious, but the transition of selected elements between the one and the other. Riolo, 2002. All this in a particular context like the analytic, being capable of realizing the singular circumstance by which the relationship with another person becomes the channel for accessing the most informed and archaic dimensions of the mind and their potential development. From this perspective, the final therapeutic factor would consist of constructing and increasing the space for symbolization, making this able to happen by means of interpretation, silence, or the containing environment, ultimately and especially with a capacity for putting ourselves into play as trained individuals with faith in the most profound reparative attunement. Lucio Sarno is Professor Emeritus of Clinical Psychology and Psychotherapy, Faculty of Medicine and Surgery, and Vita Saluta San Raffaele University in Milan, Italy. He was the Chief of Service of Clinical and Health Psychology at San Raffaele Hospital in Milan. He directs the Counseling Service and the Center for the Promotion of Psychological Wellbeing and Health Protection at the University Vita Saluta San Raffaele in Milan. He is a training analyst of the Italian Psychoanalytical Society and full member of the International Psychoanalytical Association. He is also a qualified expert in the analysis of children and adolescents and has held numerous institutional positions. He founded and was president of the Italian Institute of Group Psychoanalysis. His work is titled The Remains of the Psychoanalytic Method in the Time of the Coronavirus in Praise of Transience. The COVID-19 tsunami has forced us to deeply rethink the psychoanalytic methodological framework. 
the setting and the clinical relationship has to be significantly revised in the light of the pandemic emergency. We felt our confidence in the theoretical clinical framework of our work, in our method of treatment, wavering. Indeed, for some time now, the clinical emergency dictated by the seriousness and expressive forms of the new psychopathologies has forced us to review the solidity of the link between setting, technique, and psychoanalytic method. The feeling of transience, described by Freud already in 1916 in his work on transience, has increasingly occupied the scene of our thinking and our work as psychoanalysts. The author does not think that this necessity should inevitably force us to feel a feeling of melancholic sadness for the possibility of a near end of psychoanalysis. On the contrary, he believes that our rethinking of psychoanalysis in light of the coronavirus emergency may not necessarily represent a catastrophe, but the opportunity for Bionian catastrophic change in the way we live the relationship with the patient in significantly changed setting conditions. He also believes that coexisting with an unavoidable feeling of transience may allow us to give new light to the meaning and timing of the life of the psychoanalytic relationship. This text is read by Adam Murray Rosenthal. The Remains of the Psychoanalytic Method in the Time of the Coronavirus In Praise of Transience The Feeling of Transience, a Psychoanalytic Event Not long ago, I went on a summer walk through a smiling countryside in the company of a taciturn friend and of a young but already famous poet. The poet admired the beauty of the scene around us, but felt no joy in it. He was disturbed by the thought that all this beauty was fated to extinction, that it would vanish when winter came, like all human beauty and all the beauty and splendor that men have created or may create. All that he would otherwise have loved and admired seemed to him to be shorn of its worth, by the transience, which was its doom. They felt their enjoyment of beauty interfered with by thoughts of transience. Freud tries to ease the burden of the feeling of transience by defining it as a neurotic suffering caused by the failure to work through the process of mourning, by making a libidinal attachment to new alternative objects. In fact, the solution seems forced because it neglects the consideration of other aspects, which he himself has pointed out. He is actually writing about the emotionally heightened awareness of an inevitable feeling of loss, which painfully marks the awareness of a necessary ending. This painful emotional awareness turns out to be linked to the limited duration of all beautiful things that are destined for deterioration or destruction. In the end, it represents the feeling of loss which punctuates the human condition in light of the fact that everything must come to an end, whether the beauty offered by nature or that which man has created. Transience is a sort of non-pathological mourning that cannot be worked through, but only accepted, and contains a melancholic nucleus, but it is not a depressive melancholy. The feeling of transience colors the psychoanalysis experience intensely and in a variety of ways. We need only think of the feeling which habitually accompanies the conclusion of a psychoanalytic treatment. I believe that the psychoanalytic experience is the only one in which, once the patient's life acquires a quality and a well-being that were previously unexpressed or inaccessible, and the relationship has fully attained its transformative condition, the decision is taken to put an end to that relationship. The patient, and the analyst too, find themselves having to experience the working through of a specific mourning, the end of the analysis, 
which has few equivalents with other human experiences. Here I will recall a dream which marked the conclusion of a personal analysis and remains indelibly present in my memory even today. It was in 1979, and my analyst and I had agreed that my analytic journey would soon be coming to an end. The night after he had given me the now imminent official finishing date, I had this dream. I was driving an old bus, appealing to look at, but questionably efficient. The bus or coach was full of passengers, and the journey was following a challenging route through the Andes. I was afraid that I wasn't capable of managing the vehicle safely, of not having the experience or the license for driving such a large public service vehicle. I was afraid of putting my passengers' lives at risk. Nevertheless, in spite of my fears and a degree of uncertainty in my driving, I got through the imminent dangers, and to my relief and satisfaction, I brought the vehicle and all its passengers to their destination unharmed. Despite the happy conclusion of the analytic journey, which had left a profound mark on my personal existence and my professional training, and despite the imminent acquisition of the status of psychoanalyst, which I had so longed for, I could not fail to acknowledge the intimate pain of bereavement, the definite loss of a unique relationship that had been so fertile and beautiful, even when it needed to pass through some highly painful phases. Even now, I experience recollections, shot through with romantic nostalgia, of my training which was conducted by dividing the week between Palermo and Rome, overcoming, with a pleasure which lightened the journeys, troubles, and difficulties of every kind. Together with the memories of those years, some atmospheres re-emerge as the reasons for this pleasure. The training carried out in an exclusive, almost aristocratic climate made psychoanalytic training different from any other. Unique, I'd say. Attendance at one's chosen institute was discreetly overseen by the training analysts and at the same time characterized by personal choices made according to the rhythms of one's personal progress in how it was organized. Choice of seminars, the number and type of supervisions according to the patient's ages and the severity of their needs, self-directed preparation for the qualifying examination. Attendance at the Psychoanalytic Society's institutional scientific events further enabled close encounters with teachers and different models that were recognized as scientifically advanced and powerful. Professional activity brought great satisfactions. The gratifications that sustained it had a number of concomitant causes. Full-time work, mostly in private practice, was quickly achieved with patients well-disposed to psychoanalysis and its conditions, the canonical four sessions. The profession and the discipline enjoyed sociocultural respectability. The opportunities for professional success and economic well-being turned out to be fully rewarding and more or less extended to all members of the society, even to us candidates. And so professional success nourished a narcissistic feeling of full personal realization, and personal realization as a psychoanalyst nourished the solidity of a feeling of identity which ennobled each of us with a proud sense of belonging to an elite group which found concrete realization in our scientific community, the Italian Psychoanalytic Society. I do not believe there is a job or profession comparable to ours. The treatment of human suffering by means of the relationship with a person in all its profound intimacy, the possibility of healing made possible by shared access to the truth, even when truth is marked from the outset by an intolerable traumatic suffering, characterize a human and clinical experience which has no equal. But how many of those secret and public joys from that time have been kept alive? It is hard to give this a simple answer, and I do not want to wallow in nostalgia. Nevertheless, 
I cannot gloss over the obstructions which have progressively afflicted psychoanalysis and its practice over these years. I don't think there can be a more authentic illustration of how I feel today than a dream that coincided with my drafting of a paper on the crises of psychoanalysis, read at one of our national congresses a few years ago. I found myself in a city that was familiar and unknown at the same time. It was a modern, futuristic city, like something out of a Batman film, redolent with a disturbing gloom. I was trying to find the keys to a garage, or else the keys to my car, which I recognized as a gleaming Porsche. For a moment, the garage became a car showroom, and I felt irritated by the proximity of so many other mediocre cars for sale, presumably second-hand. The other cars were parked all over the place and much too close to my elegant, powerful, upmarket Porsche, almost blocking me in, and I was very worried about the risk of damage as soon as I started driving out, as was my intention. Then, in my car now, I was crossing a flyover. The city began to look like a design by Escher. The flyover became an underpass or tunnel, which in turn became a pedestrian arcade. I was on foot now, looking for something or someone, but it wasn't clear who, what, or where. In fact, the sensation was one of a mournfully deserted city. I am here leaving out large parts of the dream, but I believe its distinctive feeling of painful, anxious grieving is fully comprehensible. The dream seems to be a mirror image of the one that had signaled the end of my analysis nearly 40 years earlier. In the first dream, the still rudimentary analytic tool is rendered insecure by my ability to manage it, which may prove critical for my patient's passengers because my capacity for driving a challenging vehicle along difficult routes is still experienced as limited. However, in the second, my car is now powerful and highly regarded, but it is held up by the presence of endless cars of inferior quality which are obstructing its movement. Nevertheless, when the journey is made possible, it is still gloomy, the roads are deserted, and I am compelled to give up the car and rely solely on my personal capacities in seeking something unidentified. In this dream, it is my experience of the crisis and psychoanalysis which occupies the oniric scenario, the availability of rival, seductively brief psychotherapies with little emotional engagement, the socioeconomic crisis, and the challenge of ever more serious pathologies seem to be putting the solid exercise of our powerful and highly regarded method to a harsh test. In the background, we glimpse an obscure clinical scenario foretelling an imminent catastrophe. Transience and Method Transience of the Method and Via Crucis of the Psychoanalytic Setting For some time now, my experience of the psychoanalytic method as fundamentally solid and impregnable, insofar as we tacitly or explicitly claim that it is, has been accompanied by a feeling of transience. In our work as psychoanalysts, the proxemics of the relationship, the frequency and rhythmic regularity of the sessions, the manifestations of the transference, and the canonical use of interpretations have, for some time, been repeatedly called into question by an infinite number of factors. The psychopathology of the patient and its clinical, functional, and relational manifestations, the psychosocial fabric which frames his or her life, and a thousand other elements are converging to alter the frame of reference and possibility of the patient's adapting to our method setting, as well as its adaptation to the clinical and therapeutic needs of the patients themselves. Of course, the proxemic setup and the frequency of the sessions generate a specific emotional relational field, but I think it is right and necessary to reanalyze their characteristics, above all in the light of the changes which have made them necessary and will continue to do so. 
I would not wish the link with our setting to become a precious cult object stored in a collector's cabinet. Collector's items have a sad destiny. In order to combat their inevitable deterioration, they are jealously guarded but can never come to life. Use wears them out, calls for exchanges, repairs, updates, readiness to change or surrender them, the endless working through of mourning. A necessary feeling of transience is the hallmark of such processes and always accompanies them. So we must not forget that the origin of our setting does not lie in a theoretical methodological axiom, but derives from circumstances of technical and relational precariousness linked to the erotic and sensorial vector of the hysterical transference. It is an inspired defensive strategy being put to work and giving this operation an opportunity to trigger an innovative methodological setup which is unique in the clinical treatment of mental suffering, the proxemic setting of the couch and chair, and the positioning of the patient-analyst couple. It is equally comforting to think of Freud himself being frequently compelled, from the beginning I would say, to question whether a pure exercise of the method was possible in the clinical practice of psychoanalysis, and how, when faced with the choice, he had always given precedence to the applied goals of psychoanalysis, the therapy. On the other hand, the methodological illusion of a cure by means of interpretation based on knowledge of the repressed traumatic truth soon had to make way for the transformative therapeutic potency of a relational experience mediated by the transference, though without therefore abandoning a foothold in technique and methodology. As we all know, the essence of the traumatic experience consists in an affective nucleus which finds expression in the transferential potency of the relationship and it is therefore only the undergoing of this shared affective experience which generates the necessary therapeutic transformations. But the fact is that neglected emotions grow in intensity and that the intensity of the neglect is directly proportional to how far the object is projected. Bion's hyperbole enables us to comprehend how the traumatic intensity of an emotion may be matched by an ever more serious symptomatic manifestation, more and more distant from its source which equally alters the way the emotion manifests itself. All of this entails our having to measure ourselves against a symptomatic object that is ever more ectopic in its manifestations and frequently evades being identified and immediately translated in the psychoanalytic field of observation and worked through with the usual tools. For some time now in our clinical work, we have had to deal with patients who present prototypical deficiencies of the imaginative function or more simply, of the capacity for symbolization, abortive manifestations of psychic life which precipitate from time to time into the somatic and or into action, panic attacks, eating disorders, perversions, and obsessive compulsive behaviors, indefinably fluid sexual identity, significant difficulties in recognizing and expressing emotions, and various forms of phobic intolerance with regard to intimate relationships, especially of the stable and lasting kind. If we want to keep psychoanalysis alive while also giving it new opportunities for realization, we must necessarily accept the challenge posed by clinical and environmental conditions without fearing the fragility of identity which marks our experience at a time of necessary changes may diminish the validity of our curative method, even when its implementation differs from, and sometimes seems to be at odds with, the original one. Faced with such conditions, I believe that the analyst's function must necessarily be translated into differentiated capacities for listening, which relate to the various ways of being and sharing, of thinking and expressing, frequently on the patient's behalf, but also of interpreting, 
giving that term a wider and more up-to-date range of meanings which have no equivalent in the past. Such permutations of the analytic function represent the conditio sine qua non for the realization of psychoanalytic treatment. The Coronavirus Tsunami the psychoanalytic setting in the time of the coronavirus, catastrophe or catastrophic change. The COVID emergency has only made more visible the cracks that were already present in the way we methodologically addressed the many turbulences active in our clinical scenario, but unfortunately often excluded from our scientific and clinical considerations. Just like the storms provoked by the new pathologies with our functional and relational susceptibilities, the COVID-19 tsunami has found us unprepared and, it sometimes seems, on the point of collapse, bringing to light subterranean fragilities, adaptive difficulties, contradictions, furious resistance to change, frictions, and conflicts within our community. The tidal wave has, in the first instance, thrown the setting into disarray, followed by a cascade of permutations of the clinical relationship in its most fundamental features. This time, the person-to-person -person relationship has also been put into crisis. The analytic space as an intimate relationship in a shared space-time, its proximity, and its associated tools. While it is true that the survival of the care that we owe our patients during lockdown has forced us to accept what many of us have considered a necessary but impoverishing compromise in our exercise of the method and its therapeutic efficacy. For my part, I would not wish making the best of a bad job to lose its noble Bionian stamp by being reduced to an attempt to keep the relationship with the patient alive, making do with work that is more or less supportive, or at best psychotherapeutic, in the least noble sense of the term, while waiting for everything to go back to the way it was. The solution to the problem, which is seemingly temporary, does not lie in our doing something different, non-analytic, and I do not believe that there are patients who need something other than analysis. Just as there are patients who have more or less difficulty in immediately tolerating analysis, so there are circumstances which make different clinical and relational situations necessary, requiring us to try instead to give a more extended identity to the psychoanalytic method and its practice. The methodological exercise of the analytic function in the relationship implies a specific mode of listening to and elaborating the patient's experience, one that is capable of revealing the unconscious valences of clinical phenomena and the affective transferential dimensions of the relations that are active within the current setting. This equally includes the ability to carry out the thinking function, often on the patient's behalf, with the aim of rendering comprehensible, symbolizable, and hence mentally containable whatever is associated with the relevant area of suffering. In order to guarantee the exercise of the psychoanalytic method, I consider it indispensable that our thinking and practice be always set within a framework which embraces a. a theory of mental functioning which includes a theory of the defense mechanisms and a theory of the unconscious. b. a theory of etiopathogenesis which takes the mother-infant relationship as the starting point for a theory of development and its variously traumatic vicissitudes. c a theory of the clinical relationship, which includes a theory of the transference and the countertransference, and a theory of interpretation which is necessarily extended to include its derivatives and other modes of communication. So I want to try and look again at what has changed with the arrival of the coronavirus tsunami into our consulting rooms, 
in order to assess whether the needs of the emergency have entailed an abandonment of the method as being too compromised by the altered conditions of the setting, or whether conditions exist whereby we may establish a methodological comparison distinguishing between constants and variables, similarities and differences, disadvantages and or related opportunities. What is certain is that the patient has no longer been able to come to us, to our consulting room, that consulting room which, while being personal in the way it is furnished and in the rituals which frame the meeting and the relationship, has traditionally given the coordinates for the carrying out of the treatment. We have instead had to meet them in their homes, rediscovering, albeit involuntarily, the original dictates of Hippocratic medicine, the visit to the bedside of the ill person in his or her natural environment. We have all put into effect our own, more or less, shared strategies. The shift to face-to-face -face sessions, using video communication, or else the use of the telephone. For my part, I have maintained the constant of the couch in the version's couch, sofa, armchair, in the chosen room, or in various necessary spaces. The technical tool of video communication, computer, telephone, iPad, has been positioned more or less where my eye chair would be in the consulting room. Moreover, it has no longer been the patient knocking at my door, but me calling them at the prearranged time. But beyond the consideration which must be given to the variations that have intervened in the virtual setting, we cannot fail to note that the maintenance of the traditional setting contained valences that have markedly altered the concrete symbolic setup of our encounters in the consulting room, for the patient, for us, and for the relationship. The disappearance of the handshake, facial expressiveness hidden behind the mask, the need to take the patient's temperature on arrival, the obligatory and constant use of disinfectant alcohol-based solutions, in some circumstances, even the use of surgical gloves, the need to change the air and sanitize the space, the need for certain patients to certify their absence of COVID symptoms, and so on, have contaminated the natural sense of the interpersonal relationship as much on the social level as the psychoanalytic. From this point of view, remote, virtual working has, if nothing else, guaranteed the maintenance of a human dimension to our therapeutic relationship, more than meeting close-up has done. The smile of greeting, albeit at long distance, the possibility of a tranquility free from anxieties about using public transport with the risk of infection and the fears related to the frequenting of places that are necessarily not free of risk, including our consulting rooms, have fostered a mental disposition more in tune with the psychoanalytic sense of an intimately profound and shared human experience. Of course, therapeutic relationship has seemed to fluctuate wildly, but more because of the challenges to our capacity for identifying the meaning and value that should be attributed to these changes than through the actual changes that have been made to the setting. The arrangement of the relationship between the analyst's chair and the couch defines our point of observation, historically ideal for establishing the conditions for our looking, our seeing, not seeing, the conditions for our thinking, for our way of being in contact with the patient and his her being with us. But what changes in our observing, listening to, and thinking about the patient, in the way we feel each other when he, she, we are in the consulting room, or when we encounter them at long distance in their own domestic privacy? In the consulting room setting, the limited frequency directed by the concrete reality of the patient's life is matched by our consideration of the analytic benefit of the imaginative function, which is otherwise constrained by the invasive presence of that reality. 
But are we sure that the imaginative expressiveness of the couple is fostered by the frequency of a physical intimacy in the consulting room, and that in going virtually to the patient's homes, the physical distance between them and the presence of concrete objects of their domestic life must necessarily occlude our ability to think analytically about them and feel the relational presence, and likewise impede their feeling that they are genuinely accessing an analytic encounter? I believe that the possibility of seeing something that is habitually out of sight, unavailable for our direct observation, something to do with the patient's domestic privacy, their personal spaces, furniture, way of dressing, of living their lives normally within their own four walls, may contribute to rendering patients more natural, more authentically real. I do not believe that these elements, habitually withdrawn from view in the official setting, must therefore make the perceived reality blinding and blind our ability to observe, listen, imagine, and elaborate in analytic terms what they are experiencing and communicating to us. With regard to patients, I am by no means convinced that the way they present themselves in our consulting rooms, in their outdoor clothing and ways of behaving, makes them more exposed and therefore more suited to analytic work per se than they are when defended in their domestic comfort zone at long range. I sincerely think it is not possible to establish how far openness or a defensive resistant stance may be derived exclusively from the spatio-relational arrangement, physical proximity, or virtual distance. Instead, I believe that factors encouraging authentic self-expression and those that encourage resistance, though different, may find a home in both settings, in patients coming to the consulting room and our visiting them in the intimacy of their own homes. We should not forget that the sensory proximity which animates the relational setting acquired its richness in the time of theoretical clinical constructs which derive from different readings and uses of this intimacy, dependency, regression, but I do not believe there is agreement about the transferability and utility of such readings in giving a shared definition to the meaning and function of the proxemics of the setting. In any case, I feel able to assert that it is not only the proxemic conditions of the setting which make possible the transferential investment in the relationship. The transference is not the exclusive product of one relational modality. The transference, as we have indeed known for a long time, is universal and belongs to the habitual functioning of the human mind in relationships. I consider the transference as an extended and ubiquitous phenomenon of which we capture certain specific manifestations in certain conditions in our setting, whatever kind it may be, and which we read with the use of particular spectacles. So if, as I believe, we are excellent transference catchers, we will be in a position to identify and intercept transferential manifestations rarefied, refracted, overt or covert, and yet present in the various relational contexts. The forms of transference descend from the relationship's various life conditions. The real problem of the transference today is what to do with it, how to use it, if and when to interpret it. However, there is no doubt that the modifications of the setting must be matched by the presence of diverse elements and a different use of our tools, but not the giving up of those tools. In the setting that is virtually translated to the patient's home, incidental phenomena and behaviors usually excluded from our observation in the consulting room are made observable, and they contribute to the crisis in our familiar legacy and our usual reading of such phenomena. There are features that we consider generally harmless, but nevertheless significant. Home furnishing, 
wearing or not wearing shoes, smoking, cups of tea or coffee drunk during sessions, the use of blankets, etc. Other, more occasional features have sometimes, or often, appeared disturbing. Interruptions caused by other members of the nuclear family bursting onto the scene, the entry phone that must be answered, the sound of the telephone that has been left switched on for the most varied, sometimes justified reasons, connection problems, technical breakdowns, batteries running low. Still others have seriously challenged us because they have touched sensitive points in our long consolidated reading of the setting and the contract. The unexpected postponing of a session, or more often requests to change the setting from live to remote, sometimes just before the session for the most varied reasons, a late train, traffic jams, fear of going out or taking public transport, a sleepless night followed by falling asleep unexpectedly, the demands of work and last minute changes of shift being held up somewhere. Obviously, the heterogeneity of the elements I have cited means that they must be managed in different ways. Nevertheless, I have long believed that the concepts of acting out and resistance need to undergo a profound reconsideration and that the present state of emergency may help us to read them in a different way. I am ever more convinced that acting out should be considered as an extreme expressive communicative mode, but one that is sometimes clinically obligatory for the patient. Thus, its widespread presence in life, like that of transference, compels us to look again at its meaning and analytic use in the relationship, withdrawing it from the minefield of more or less precise, more or less severe, more or less superegoic, more or less defensive, even, I would say resistant, interpretive obligations. How convinced are we that requests to rearrange the session, and nowadays the prearranged setting, are to be rejected as resistance, and hence that schedules which differ from those that are officially recognized must be denied. I think that today, patients' requests to change a schedule, and still more of the setting, should in certain circumstances be accepted. We must be capable of regarding ourselves as moving more freely in necessarily changeable settings, in the grip of phenomena that are being produced in these conditions, while being fully aware that this makes it harder to carry out our tasks as psychoanalysts. Brief conclusions in praise of transience in the adaptable setting. Today we are exposed to an exceptional new nakedness which compels us to give up the weapons we consider to be our best, the solid certainties that have guided us up until now, but also the technical armor that has hitherto protected us. As long as things have worked, we have not sufficiently considered that within these theoretical and clinical assumptions and these methodological principles, there may be lurking readings and behaviors that are not always necessary, helpful, or effective in treating our patients. But these assumptions have long guaranteed a comfort zone, one that has been fascinating in carrying out our psychoanalytic work. However, such methodological strategies which have anchored our operations have induced us to attribute an excessive and mistaken value to certain factors which, though useful, have been regarded as indispensable. And today reality is opposing this, saying that it's not always the case, that they are not always to be used in the same way and not always helpful in ensuring that we operate correctly and effectively as psychoanalysts. We must allow room for change and take a look at our axioms, our dogmas, and bring to light some of the quirks which have been resistant to change. Going back for a moment to the question of the orthodox setting, how many times have we refused a session 
or even an analysis to patients whose lives and professional activities are considered not to conform to a suitably canonical and regular timetabling of sessions. We now realize that our severity has on many occasions stopped us from offering an analytic treatment to patients asking for our help. This methodological position of obstinate adherence to a credo has limited the use of our instrument and risked eroding confidence in our discipline and our method of treatment. There is no doubt that space and time are the fundamental coordinates of our clinical operations within a relational setting, but we must be capable of maintaining the psychoanalytic method as a constant even within variable frames of reference and setups. The coronavirus has stripped us of our official methodological apparatus, but this nakedness should not be an embarrassment or leave us feeling fragile or worse yet, defenseless. After the risks we have run in our exposure to the ills of contemporary life, it is now those of exposure to an unprotected relationship with the patient that are causing a crisis in our methodological clinical relational identity. I am more and more firmly convinced that one day in the not-so-distant future, we will be able to consider the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has become COVID-20, and unfortunately also now 21, as an epical event which, besides all the bereavements and sufferings it has caused, all the psychic, socioeconomic, work-related, and existential disasters it has brought about, will be able to make possible a developmental transition, I would say a catastrophic change, in our method, which an infinite number of factors were already presaging as inevitable, but to which we had remained anchored in resistance. If this is the state of things, why should we be afraid of a setting whose topology is destined to become ever more variable, intermittent, oscillating, even nomadic? We must get used to the presence of a more and more rarefied transference, dense and diffuse at the same time, occasionally impalpable like the unconscious it represents. Such a transference shows the consistency and forms of an open star cluster, the name given in astronomy to a highly dense group formed from thousands of young stars in no particular structure, which we must be able to identify and treat in entirely new spatiotemporal conditions. But in light of all this, the function of time in analysis comes back to challenge us. Are we still subject, and in the same way, to Freud's Hamlet-like question, analysis terminable or interminable, which has tormented us since 1936? The problem of time returns incessantly to ask us how decisive are its rhythms and its extensions of the canonical implementation of the developmental and terminal process of treatment. Just as I believe that the rhythm and frequency of sessions and the space in which our meetings occur are necessary variables for understanding the characteristics of the relationship which is determined by them. At the time, I also believe that the importance attached to the duration of the relationship may represent a function of the meaning to be given to the process of treatment. The conflict between method and technique over the duration of analysis is derived from a conception of the process and treatment that is no longer usable. If transience is the most authentic indication that we exist, think, feel, and function, why not restore authentic fullness to an operation in which love of truth need not be translated into a prolonged treasure hunt with a certain outcome, or alternatively into pragmatically utilitarian shortcuts? I think there is still much to learn from the suicidal funeral processions which accompanied the pharaohs to their burial, and by contrast, 
yet more to be learned from the effective and subversive action of the tomb robbers evoked by Bayan in catastrophic change, who later plundered those tombs in defiance of the dominant religion and superstitions. It is the pleasure of meaning unearthed, experienced, and shared which generates an indestructible reality and confers it on the objects of psychoanalysis, despite their existence being once again called into question. As a mental state is experienced as being very close to a condition of physical debilitation when the symptomatic condition compels a lack of truth, as if there were an unbearable lack of nourishment, so the renewal of the experience of shared meaning guarantees that the analytic experience has a pleasure which is hard to explain, close to the contemplation of beauty which brings with it the pleasant and harmonious taste of truth. This encounter, this repeated attunement, enables the analytic experience to keep itself suspended in a sort of extraterritorial condition, capable of lightening the burden of loss, and thereby bringing freedom from grievous and indigestible valences to the feeling of inevitable transience, which will nevertheless accompany them.